0: Listener Production. My Year of Living Vulnerably is already topping bestseller lists around Australia. You've probably already had it recommended to you at least a couple of times. And that's because this book is creating buzz. Why? For unpacking Aussie masculinity in an entirely different way. The book's author is Rick Morton, and he's a vulnerable man. And personally, I do not know enough of those. I don't mean vulnerable in the way that we too often think about vulnerability, those cliches that we tend to synonymise with weakness or fragility. Being vulnerable, according to Rick, is the key to being closer to one another. It's also how we can break down versions of masculinity that say being a man can only look and sound a certain way.
1: You're allowed to touch your mates when you're playing footy. In fact, it's encouraged. Um, You know, if you're drunk, it's allowed because your inhibitions are down. But there are so many men who just want to hug you and say, I love you when they're drunk. And that's not an accident.
0: Up next, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor, where we recommend what to watch, read, listen, cook, see and do. But first, here is the extraordinary Rick Morton doing what he does best, which is helping people have conversations they've probably never had before and just a warning for you before we get deep into this chat with Rick Morton that Rick and I have a conversation that goes to some pretty difficult places so if you're finding that it's a tough day with your mental health you might want to take a pass and if you're someone who finds descriptions of physical pain or violence or hurt difficult to listen to then you might also want to skip this one. Rick, recently you asked some friends what masculinity meant to them. What did they have to say?
1: Oh, God, I feel bad for laughing about it because we were being deliberately ironic. But, you know, these were my straight male friends and one of them was like, you know, it's it's pretending to dummy pass something to, to another bloke in the office when you're like passing them tomato sauce or something like that. Um, which is just such a callback to my entire existence in Queensland in high school. <laughs> there were dummy passes everywhere. Uh, and another one was um, saying, <laughs> this is I mean it's terrible, but he was saying, and it's kind of true, uh, not asking too often or checking in on your mate's mental health. Now, obviously they they were joking, but there is such a, a element of truth to these things because I've witnessed that across most of my life so far.
0: There's a real undertone there of some, lack of vulnerability, right? Some lack of willing to communicate, willingness to talk about feelings and the more difficult parts of life. And I suspect that rings true for a lot of us. But I think there's Mm -hmm. also something to what you've just said there around masculinity being a hardened masculinity.
1: Yeah. It's kind of reliant on a sense of bravado and and never showing what they perceive to be weakness. I mean, they assume a certain kind of man assumes that vulnerability is weakness and weakness is feminine. And, you know, everything is kind of stacked against this idea of women being, in their eyes, the weaker sex, even if it's not something that they actually agree with intellectually. It's just kind of conditioned in us. And so everything is, we have to set ourselves against that benchmark. We can't be weak. We can't be feminine. We can't be gay. And so this whole existence kind of stems from that one seed of intuition in the male brain.
0: Your first book, uh, 100 Years of Dirt, explores the experiences and attitudes of a few of the men in your life, particularly in your younger life. Can you tell me a bit about your grandfather and the land he owned
1: that you grew up on? Yeah. So George Morton was my my grandfather, my father's father, and he owned Pandy Pandy Station, which was 6,600 square kilometres Of just pretty much desert and rolling sand dunes, which is, you know, it's 1.6 million acres, if we're more familiar with that terminology. And he was just, he was a man like the landscape itself. Like he was violent, he was cruel, he took great delight in kind of antagonizing his children. And there were seven of them. And he used to set them up against each other in games, these weird games where he knew that they would come to blows because they all needed to please him. And so, you know, one particular example was he'd send – they had one milking cow in the in the home paddock, and he'd tell one son to go and get the milking cow on horseback, and then he'd tell the other one to walk. But they didn't know that they were both doing the same thing, and he would just sit back and, and, and watch them go at it because his rule was the law, and, you know, my father, because of that – was a really broken man by the time, you know, I arrived in his life. He was just very diminished in in all senses. And he desperately wanted to not repeat the mistakes of his father. But the pain and the wounds of all of that, I think, almost made it a fait accompli. But he just did it in a completely different way. His kind of damage, I guess, was to do it through an absence, uh, an absence of love, an absence of the care he wanted to give and provide. And so it was just a really harsh... Upbringing for him that ended up kind of moving through the generations.
0: Do you think Australian men have a problem with talking about love?
1: I do. I I, like. I genuinely do, and I actually find it genuinely sad because even people I've been close to over my adult life have, you know, been much better than the people I grew up with. But still, there is a point beyond which they can't go. There's kind of a yearning that they have to be close and to touch. Um, and have meaningful contact with their mates from whom they derived great joy being around kind of breaks out in these little escapades. So like, you know, when they're playing footy, you can, you're can you allowed to touch your mates when you're playing footy. In fact, it's encouraged. Um, you know, if you're drunk, it's allowed because your inhibitions are down. But there are so many men who just want to hug you and say, I love you when they're drunk. And that's not an accident. <laughs> like, I know it sounds like kind of pop psychology, but there's a reason for it. And it's because our inhibitions are down, which means by, you know, reversal, when we're sober, the inhibitions are up. They're there, there's walls, and we built the walls ourselves.
0: We've had some pretty intense public discussions this year in Australia about gender-based violence and and harassment in, in workplaces. And a lot of that conversation has focused around the data, which tells us about the scarily high number of women who've experienced harassment, assault or rape in their lives Mm. or will experience that. But we probably do talk less about the number of men who will experience harassment, violence and rape in their lives, the common factor being a male perpetrator, right?
1: Yes, and this is the thing that all of those somewhat accurate statistics i mean the the men's rights guys will say that women don't experience violence more often in domestic relationships which is just bullshit, right they do far and away but men are more likely to commit violence on other men you know men are more likely to be victims of random violence in public areas you know if you just read jess hills see what you made me do which i'm sure you have i mean we're all acting out even me like i'm gay but even i'm conditioned to a certain degree to not want to appear weak around other people. And it's not that men are afraid of women because they know they can physically overpower them, but they are afraid of being mocked by women um, or scorned by them because in the eyes of other men, that's what makes them look weak. So it's the hierarchy within that regard that they're policing. You know, they're not physically concerned about women. Um, But that's what I mean when I say that we built these walls ourselves. You know, we are the only ones that can stop that violence. Um, against women and against other men, the only ones.
0: When you were growing up, how did you sort of think about or learn about being a man, I suppose? Who were your male role models as a kid?
1: Well, I didn't really have any. Um, I mean, like, my, I had my dad up until the age of seven who was, you know, not an ideal role model in that sense. Like he wasn't physically abusive to us or anything like that and he he tried so hard to be a good dad. But he, I mean, he got bitten by a brown snake and then refused medical attention. Like, ah. that's, that's the kind of man he was because, you know, asking for a doctor when you've been bitten by one of the second or third most deadly snake in the world is being piss weak. That's an extreme example in his life. But you see it everywhere with, well, I'm, one of the, my favorite things I quote in um, uh, my year of living vulnerably is this guy who posted a Snapchat of a rainbow saying, I'm not gay, but that's pretty beautiful. Um, Actually, it was a sunset.
0: You don't need the first half of that sentence. You You can just say that's pretty beautiful.
1: Give yourself permission to see beauty in the world. And that's something that my father couldn't bring himself to do. Like he had a code, like, you know, he only ever wore brown jeans or olive green jeans on the station we grew up on because blue jeans were, quote, unquote, for poofters. His whole worldview was mediated through what is and isn't gay slash what is and isn't weak. And that's kind of this kind of poison thinking that I inherited early on. So when I actually realised I was gay, I was terrified because my only experience of it was that it was something to be um, abhorred. It was disgusting.
0: So I asked about male role models. Who was there in your life who was gay or lesbian or bisexual who you could look to and think, okay, this is a way of learning how to be in the world?
1: Uh, literally no one. So this is funny how the, these certain things stick in your head. So I remember I used to watch The Secret Life of Us, which I was definitely too young to Didn't watch at the time.
0: Didn't we all?
1: Yeah, right. And I watched it with mum. And I remember watching, I used to stay up and watch um, Rove Live, and I remember he interviewed the actor who played the gay character, the gay man in that show. I can't remember his name. But I remember realising in that interview on Rove Live, of all places, that the actor was straight and he was just playing mm. the gay character, and that blew my mind. I was like, Oh my God, how, how can he do that? He must be copying so much abuse. And it was like, like an earth shaking moment for me to realize that that was even something that you could consider doing as a straight man. I didn't even know that there were gay men out there doing, you know, living normal lives and and loving and having genuine normal experiences that you and I, I say normal, but that's the kind of conditioning I'm talking about, right? I didn't think we were, and I just didn't see it on TV ever. And it wasn't until I got to university where I first met uh, the first gay couple who were in a relationship. And it was staggering to me, like genuinely staggering, because I kept thinking privately, how do they do it? How do they move through the world every day? It just made no sense.
0: In My Year of Living Vulnerably, which is your new book, you talk about an experience you had at the Newcastle Writers Festival and a realisation you had. Can you tell us what that was?
1: Yeah, that was quite a moment. <laughs> and it sounds like I'm being melodramatic when I talk about it, but it was like I was I was asked to take part in this panel uh, on trauma. And I'd written 100 Years of Dirt, which was, in my eyes, it was a book about my family's trauma and my dad's trauma and my brother's trauma, who was burned and nearly died. But I'm on this panel and I was listening to Dr. Mira Atkinson, who's a poet and academic, read from her book Traumata about a traumatic episode after she that she experienced as an adult, and she was describing these physical sensations in the body and these ideas in the mind, you know, antennae constantly out searching for threats, you know, the hypervigilance um, and being constantly monitoring the environment for ways that you might meet your end. And I realized literally on that stage that I needed to go and see a trauma specialist. Like it was like a lightning bolt had hit me. Wow. Because I had gone through my life and seven or eight psychologists trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I'd only ever been told it was depression or a generalized anxiety disorder, which is very different to trauma. And so I, had, I was just walking around blind, um, totally in the dark. And then on that moment happened on stage. And I was like, holy shit, Like that's, that happens to me.
0: You mentioned just a moment ago that your first book was about the trauma of your dad, the trauma of your brother the trauma of your family and what they'd experienced. Do you think it almost took that moment for you to realise that you were present for a lot of that? You were part of it too?
1: That's re- that's a really good question because I really, yeah, I thought that it happened to someone else. And that was always kind of my role in the family, right? I was the mediator and I was the the one who was meant to be calm and mature to help my mum. And because my sister was seven years younger and my older brother was... You know, burned and recovering. And then it wasn't until I was on that stage where I was like, holy shit, like all of the things I wrote about, they, they were all trauma, but they were also mine.
0: Can you talk to us about what you witnessed when you were a kid? You referred just briefly to your brother being burned. Can you tell us about? what happened as, as much as you're comfortable talking about today and then maybe how that continues to impact you now, what you're learning by having, I imagine, the conversations you've been having since that realisation with psychologists, psychiatrists, whoever it might be.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, that I mean, that day changed the course of my entire life. Um, it changed the course of my brother's life, my mum's life, my sister's life. And it was Father's Day in 1994. Um, it was hot out. Me and my brother had been out playing around with guns as it happens. Um, And then we went into the shed, into the shade to get out of the sun. And this jackaroo was fixing a motorbike in the shed and he lost a bolt into the car servicing pit. And my brother went down to get the bolt, but it's one of those deep pits where you can stand up underneath a car and let all the oil and petrol out. And he couldn't see the bolt. So he asked for a, a torch and the jackaroo didn't have one. So he gave him a lighter and the whole thing just went up in a massive fireball. And I was looking over the edge of the pit at the time. In fact, you know, when I was younger, I used to joke, you know, I was there too because I had like the left side of my hair singed, and I used to make it like a joke. I'd be like, yeah, I also suffered. And but I do, I did, and I remember watching my my dad drag my brother out of that pit. He was still so hot to the touch that the jackaroo couldn't hold him. And I remember him in my dad's arms with like this skin just hanging off of him like curtains, like glad wrap. That was the start of like a 5-hour wait. Uh, it was probably, actually it was probably four hours before the Royal Flying doctor service could get there from the birdsville races where they were earlier on in the day. We, you know we had to stabilize him. we had to put up towels over him. his head had swelled to like twice the size because his skin had been cauterized so the fluid couldn't get out. And then the moment when they finally took off, my mum had to go with him obviously and my three week old sister at the time. and that was the last I saw of them for you know almost two months and I was left alone having just witnessed all of that with my father, who I was not particularly close to because he didn't understand me, he didn't know how to relate to me, and and vice versa. And while the people I loved the most in the world were 1,200 kilometres away, I watched my dad have an affair with our 19-year-old governess. And my particular type of trauma, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, began in that moment because for me, obviously I was traumatised, by what I saw happen to my brother but because I was so upset by it, what I needed most in those following weeks was the person, the only person in my life at that point physically to care for me, and he didn't. In fact, I watched him choose someone else, and that became the seed of what I assumed was something you know, inalienable about my life, which was that one of the people who should have loved me, no matter what, didn't. Therefore, if you do the rest of the equation— no one else could possibly.
0: Rick, a lot of your new book is about love, it's about compassion, it's about vulnerability, but it also to me seemed to be very much about forgiveness. Hmm. How do you think about that period of your life now? Is forgiveness something that's that's
1: possible? Uh, yeah. No, it, I mean it is for me and it's not something I would ever, you know, urge anyone else to do without without knowing them or without even you know letting them come to that decision on their own. It's, it's an incredibly personal thing. But for me, I mean, part of the problem for me was that in my first book, I wrote a whole chapter about my family history, partly because it was yeah, just serially fascinating, but also because it explained to my father, and my father's not a bad person, and he didn't do any of these things because he was trying to hurt me. He did them because he didn't know how to love And he had been failed at that earliest moment in the same way that he would end up failing me. And it was, you know, early on in my adult life, it was entirely possible that I could have gone on to be broken in that same way and to do damage to others. And obviously, I didn't want that to happen. But I also didn't want to be judgmental of the person or other people who you know, face a similar kind of crossroads in their life and and without actually ever making the choice, find themselves going down one or the other. And more importantly, I think I had to forgive the seven-year-old version of myself who I had blamed for so long for, you know, bequeathing me as an adult this kind of faulty wiring in my brain. Like I blamed that boy who was so alone and so scared and so um, – you know, abandoned in that moment. I blamed him for failing to be stronger. You know, I turned that same sense as, you know, you've got to be strong, you've got to be stoic. I turned it against him. And to me, forgiveness is as much or more so, I think, it's an act of preserving your own sense of self and being kind to yourself. You know, in reflecting that generosity inwards, you have to believe it's possible to reflect it outwards and onto other people. And if you can't do that, then, you know, maybe people can't do it for you. And, you know, no one's perfect and everyone makes mistakes. And, uh, you know, I'd like to believe that we live in a place and a society where, you know, as long as there is effort and acknowledgement that people can and do better. And I'm trying to do that in my own life. And so I think that thing is fundamental to that. It's kind of the engine room, I guess, of my own progress in life is that I have to believe those things are true.
0: Rick, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing.
1: Thank you for having me, Jamila. I really appreciate it.
0: That's it for my conversation with the award-winning journalist and author, Rick Morton. I really recommend My Year of Living Vulnerably, which is perfect for you or a bloke you know, or a woman you know. It is a book about humanness And healing that I reckon everyone should read. I'd also recommend 100 Years of Dirt, which is Rick's first book, which is a family memoir of a series of essays about growing up outside the cities of Australia. All right, it's time to get down to business with the weekend list. Welcome, Tate McGregor. Do you have something for us to? read, watch, listen, cook, see,
2: do. It's a podcast. Who would have thought it? <laughs> I've got one that's only a very short form. You could probably binge all of these in one sitting, three-minute episodes. It's a podcast called Hey, How You Going? It's made by Lindsay Green, who previously to this podcast actually made a whole podcast series on escalators. She's so niche. It's so okay. interesting. But What's hey, this one about? Hey, How You Going? are conversations that she has in her head. So she plays. Multiple characters in each one of these conversations, but it flicks between real life and her head voice. So it's conversations like she runs into an old friend that she hasn't seen in a long time and isn't super interested in talking to, or it's a conversation with her doctor and it's a question that she doesn't really know how to answer. She orders food from a man at a food truck and he doesn't really want to take her order and it's just the things that she wishes she could say out loud or wants to <laughs> say out loud but doesn't say and how to navigate that. It's really cute, very simple and, yeah, three-minute-long episodes. Hey, how you going? Well, I know I don't want chicken because the last time I ate chicken I had diarrhoea for
0: days, so I'm still a little bit nervous about eating it. Um, I think I am going to go with the garden goodness. All right. Can I please order some chips as well then? Yep. Any dipping sauce? What for? Has this bitch ever ordered food before for the chips? If you're looking for something just a little bit longer, folks, then I have a book recommendation for you. The Believer is the latest book from Sarah Krasnistein. You might recognise her name. She wrote The Trauma Cleaner, which was absolutely huge a few years ago. In the believer, she is asking questions about what we believe, why we believe it, and who helps us believe it, if that makes sense. What she's done is she has interviewed six different people from around the world, I'm trying to work out how to say this, who believe in very unusual things. So she interviews someone who genuinely believes in ghosts and is a ghost hunter. Mm. She interviews someone who believes in UFOs. She speaks to a extremely religious person who believes in a literal sense of heaven and the devil. She speaks to someone who believes in the creation of the universe in six days and not as a theory or a metaphor or a story from the Bible, but as, as reality. And she also talks to some people who believe things that I suspect are more mainstream, like being able to die with autonomy or facing transgressions with an open heart it's a really beautiful book. It's incredibly generous. Sarah gives every person she speaks to dignity and compassion and time. And the book is written with incredible empathy. And somehow these people with pretty out there beliefs make you start asking some questions about your own.
2: I love that. It's holding up a mirror to your own beliefs. I feel like everyone needs that sort of level of critical thinking about their own mental pathways.
0: Now, Tate, you have a documentary to recommend that literally every person in my life has told me to watch and really? I, have been, I have been
2: resisting it. Sell it to me. Well add me to that list Jamila because I want to recommend you My Octopus Teacher. It's on Netflix so super accessible and it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature so if people are recommending it to you, the Academy's recommending it to you just go ahead and watch it but I'll tell you what it's about. It's about a diver who swims with an octopus that lives in a kelp forest off the coast of South Africa. He's a dad and he at some point brings along his son and everything but he spends every day like full days diving off of this coast and befriending an octopus so he finds this octopus's nest and then figures out you know her routine of her day-to-day life and slowly befriends it and she trusts him and then it's this beautiful friendship and there's also you know There's predators in the ocean. So he watches some really horrific things happen, but it's that struggle between, you know, interfering but also letting nature take its course.
1: A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realise that you're very similar in a lot of ways.
2: It's beautiful, but it's also insane to see how he balances his family life outside of this friendship with this dedication to checking in on this octopus for hours every day. You've got to wonder how his wife feels about this, essentially. But, um, yeah, i got
0: to say, I roll my eyes when my husband goes <laughs> off surfing. If he was like, I'm going off because I've got to check on my octopus friend twice a day.
2: <laughs> and he does talk about that. He talks about the rebalancing and how this has become such an important member of his life.
1: What she taught me was to feel that you're part of this place, not a visitor. That's a huge difference.
2: It's great. My Octopus Teacher, again, on Netflix. Please go watch it, Jamila, so we can talk about some cute octopuses. (laughs) You will never look at calamari the same. I will warn you that. I will warn you that.
0: I still like eating calamari. Okay, I have a recommendation where you don't have to befriend any animals on a screen or in real life. No. (laughs) I want to recommend the greatest pumpkin pie recipe ever. Now, I really love to bake. So I am someone who has baked a bunch of pumpkin pies around Thanksgiving time in my life. I do not believe pumpkin pie should only be eaten at that time of the year. That is not fair. We should not contain its greatness to only a few days a year. It should be eaten
2: year round. It's like breakfast food only at breakfast time. Stupid idea. Pumpkin pie only around fall. Stupid idea.
0: Mm. Absolutely incorrect.
2: So get into the pumpkin pie.
0: After all, it is autumn here in Australia. The best recipe I have found is from Sally'sBakingAddiction.com. She literally calls it the great pumpkin pie recipe. So it's hard to miss. It is so beautifully done. It is simple. It is light. The inside is like, it's not sickly sweet. It's not too much, but it's got those beautiful nutmeggy cinnamon, ginger, those beautiful pumpkin spices coming through so strong. And then the pastry is flaky, delicious goodness. Serve it with some cranberries and cream and oh, it's better than an octopus movie any day. Oh, sounds like heaven. Maybe I'll make that for my next viewing of an
2: octopus movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's it for this week from Tate and myself in the Weekend Briefing. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you track us down wherever you get your podcasts, we highly recommend downloading the Listener app where you can get radio, podcasts, music, news, as well as the briefing and the weekend briefing episodes. You can also follow us on social media at The Briefing Podcast where you can recommend what Tate and I should recommend. We want to know what you are reading, watching, listening to, cooking, seeing, and doing. We will be back, of course, on Monday morning, bright and early at 6 a.m. with Tom and Annika with the latest headlines in your headphones. Listener